One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week, because it's International Week, we've got a special lineup of guests. It's Allison Rudd, it's Graham Spears, and making his debut, it's Julien Lawrence from the newspaper Le Parisien, which I'm sure you all read regularly. Today, we'll be reviewing England's victory over Wales and Brazil's win over Scotland. And also, we'll be discussing the changing relationship between fans and players. So please stick with us for the next 35 minutes or so. Well, it's everybody's favorite week of the year, International Week, where, as uh, our good friend Tony Evans likes to say, there's no football. But, of course, there was football. Wales against England. Um, i got to start with this. Is the result matters qualification nearly wrapped up? Shall we start with the most English person here, Alison? <laughs> um, does the result matter? Of course, oh, is that what matters, matters most? And, um, well, that was what, that was the question beforehand. Um, when the build-up was, I think people suspected, especially with no Gareth Bale, that, that England would probably get the result. So the question was. Is it incumbent upon England and the managerial team to try and make people fall back in love with the team? Um, you know, a constant reminder that we haven't quite forgiven them for the for the World Cup and not the not necessarily the results in the World Cup, but the way they played. And do England have to win us back by not just getting the points in Cardiff, but showing some sort of flair and great organisational ability and great picks and positions? And. Uh, to some degree, I think they didn't. It was only the, the, the goals came very quickly, and then, and then what happened? Why didn't England then press on and uh, completely, completely shatter shatter the Welsh? Uh, they could have done if they'd wanted to. They seemed quite content with two nil. Um, I found it, I found it, they almost vaguely ludicrous that that it started so well and then they didn't, they didn't press on. Um, because imagine what that would have done for how the squad would feel had they won <laughs> six six nil and and scored some really really lovely goals and played some lovely football. Imagine what that would have done. Instead, everyone's still a bit sort of, oh well, you know, is Scott Parker would he be that good against a good team? And you know, is Jack Wilshere being overrated? So you come out of it with more negativity than you should for a two nil. 2-0 victory. Julian, following Alison's opening monologue there, um, <laughs> the, <laughs> well, first of all, I want to get something out of the way here. Okay, I come from a culture where if you won the game, you won the game. Whether you win 2-0, 5-0, it's about how dominant you look on the day, not about how many goals you can score. That's for children, although I do know that this weekend Germany 3-0 up at halftime against Kazakhstan. They were booed by their own fans because they wanted to see more goals, more excitement, and so on, right? So I come at this, I disagree basically everything Allison said about that. Um, but 
did you find the performance dominating enough, or would you have found it more dominating if they'd won? Six nils. Yeah, two. no, I agree with Alison. I was disappointed. But so you're the, wrong too. Yeah, <laughs> no, but, but you know, France, France beat Luxembourg two 0 and they were really poor. And and in in the paper the next day, it was exactly the same. Where it's like, well, yeah, we won, but we were really, really poor. And I think England were the same. They had no chances apart the two goals. They got lucky with the penalty. Because, I mean, it was a penalty, but so early on in the game. After that, there was no way back for Wales anyway. And yes, you know, they, they, they did play high on the pitch. That 4-3-3 seemed to work OK. But, you know, in, in that Welsh team, the players are League One level, you know, championship level. And some of them even, you know, some, some, someone like Joe Ledley was really poor and he plays for Celtic. <laughs> so, so are you, are you, OK, exactly. I, 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 I got to agree because he's basically implying that um, the average Welsh player <laughs> is is League One level and James Collins and Aaron Rand Ramsey and Danny no, Collins. They all thank except, you for that. Except no, for the except ones who are. And then, and then he says, like, one of them is even worse. He plays for Celtic. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I was disappointed by him so much. I really thought leaving Cardiff and snubbing some Premier League clubs to go to Celtic, I was I was very sceptical. And now I saw him playing yesterday, and I've watched him playing for Celtic as well. And I don't know if you agree with me, Graham, but to me, he hasn't improved whatsoever. Yeah, Julian, I, I, don't worry, I caught the insult loud and clear <laughs> <laughs> about Scottish football. But you know what, I, I agree with you to a, a degree. There's been quite a lot of debate among Celtic fans about just how much substance Joe Ledley has got as a midfielder. Um, sometimes he seems one-paced, and I, I, I saw some of the adjectives that were used um, to describe his performance in, Card uh, in Cardiff at the weekend, plodding and, and, and clumsy and, and this kind of thing. And I've seen him um, play like this um, for Celtic. And the more, the more I've seen him, I think he can be a decent enough player. But for me, from what I've seen of Joe Ledley so far, he was not ready to step up into the English Premier League and play there. And uh, I gather he was particularly poor at the weekend. But he, he's been... Well, let's say he's blown hot and cold for Celtic, and um, okay, they, they got him on a on a Bosman, so there was no transfer fee involved. But he'll be on good wages at Celtic, and uh, you, know, uh, for, for, you know, from what we saw, for example, of the the pre-injury Aaron Ramsey, Joe Ledley was not in that class, and I think he's still to show whether he can be a really a really good player for, for Celtic. Never mind Wales. I'm going to make you all say one nice thing about Wales before we finish this segment, um, just because it, it seems to be extremely unfair. Julian, I believe you are married to a Welsh lady as well, which makes it even worse. Um, well, well, got me. I, I was. I watched this game on on television, and afterwards, I saw Dicko's friend Gary Neville, and. And and they they were all talking about how oh look how great England are playing four three three and not rigid four four two and rigid four four two is bad and nobody plays rigid four four two and I just thought like a like did they learn the adjective like rigid like that morning and they just want to use it as often as possible but but b like when we talk about tactics and we put like rigid in front of something it's generally always bad right Alison I mean help me here like rigid bad fluid good right. I, I'm not sure there's such a thing as a rigid 4-4-2 anymore. Anyway, I, I mean... You should, you should take I, Gary Neville. Well, um, in the 18 years I've been writing the formation down when you watch a match, it, it's been a constant increase in the, the amount of time it has taken the press box to agree on what the formation is in that time, even if it is supposed to be 4-4-2. There'll always be someone that says, oh, but, you know, I don't, I think, I think that, that defender's holding, really, don't you think, don't you think so? And um, 
So I haven't seen a rigid. I haven't seen a rigid four four two at a reasonably high level anyway for for quite a long time. And I think when people, I think that's what they mean when they say rigid four four two. They're sort of harking back to maybe a time when people weren't so. Uh, savvy about the fact you have to think about the fluidity of your formation. I mean, England weren't four three three; they weren't four one four one. They Was were a mixture. They were a mixture of both at different times in the match. You can go to a game and you can watch it, and in different papers you'll see different formations printed on the papers about about the shape they played. Um, you know, a four four two can very quickly become a four three three if so much as one of the wide players starts pushing up the pitch. Um, you have um, uh, you have things like Capello, for example, at the World Cup being <clears throat> panned for the way England played, and of course England were a dismal flop. Everybody recognises that. But was it the system, or was it flat players who's like Rooney, whose batteries were were? Julia, it seems to me also that you know. I can play, say, 4-4-2 or 4-3-3, but if I have a very fast player who runs with his head down, maybe Aaron Lennon out wide, um, the interpretation of that 4-4-2 is going to be different than if I have, you know, say, James Milner out wide, who, who maybe is, is you know, not as quick and will, will, will maybe cut inside or do different things. Um, yeah, I agree with. I think it's all about the player's desire, movement, whatever system you play in, where, you know, whatever tactical you try to put... Then it's all about if they want to, you know, a four four two could look brilliant. Could, you could play very well in a four four two, and you could play really poorly in a four three three of, you know, a four two three one, whatever. And I really think it's down to the players' desire, motivation, movement, you know, and, and how they link with each other more than where they play and if they switched on or if they don't or things like that. And I do think we talk too much in this country in England about tactics and how Capello plays and everything. We talk too much about tactics in this country. Okay, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> I just think we say the wrong things, but I want to talk about Gab, something Gab, else. That so, go ahead. Question, Gab. What's what's the what's the single greatest objection? It's become fashionable these days. What's the single greatest objection to playing four four two? It's that it's uh, it's flat and you get outmanned in midfield because you only have two central midfielders and the other team normally has three. Right. And what are the other teams uh, playing four four two? Ah, so you're being clever here, but see, but that doesn't that doesn't happen because everybody's being intelligent here in England and playing four three three or four five one. You see, I thought Capello just one game ago played four four two in Switzerland. But that's, but, but, but that's international. I mean, that's a bit. That's a bit. I thought you might at club level, but generally, I think the main objection that everybody brings up is you're outmanned in midfield. And I think it's in England, particularly because there's this perception that English central midfielders are not, you know, Xavi and Iniesta. What happens is they're not technically as good, so you need three of them, so they don't keep losing the ball in the middle of the park. Yeah. And and that's the conventional wisdom. I, I don't know to what degree I buy it. But um, Alex McLeish's response to that is, you play a narrow four. McLeish always says, so if you play four four two, you don't play two wide men. You play a, a tight narrow four. Anyway, you let's, know, not, get, let's I, not get bogged down in my new shine. Obviously, McLeish and, uh, and Ancelotti share a similar view on that one. Um, <laughs> Moving on from the English tactical debate to something even more interesting. <laughs> How about the English captaincy? I've, I've struggled until now to avoid mentioning uh, 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 this issue. But, okay, here's what, what I really don't get. Okay, we, I, I, I would hope that we all agree that the armband doesn't really matter and it only matters to the degree that it matters to the players and whatever. But what I don't understand here is 
Why do Rio Ferdinand's people keep going on and on and on about this? And now it's so important that he called Steven Gerrard, but not him. I'm trying to understand what does Rio gain from this? Obviously, he has some degree of sympathy from some people because his feelings were hurt that Capello didn't ring him or tell him personally or so on and, and whatever else. And I guess Franco Baldini's just a turd who doesn't matter because he's irrelevant because, you know, he broke the news to him or whatever. But I, I don't What is real? And it is real Ferdinand's people and his lapdogs in our profession who, who keep going on and on and on about with this. And how does this help him? He already has all the sympathy, right? Well, I don't... If they are going on and on and on, it's partly... A source it's called partly... the Rio. Rio's mate, Rio's <laughs> friend, Rio's butcher. I mean, I mean, we all know who it is, right? Yeah, we but... all know who it is. And if it wasn't for the fact I'd get in trouble, I would start naming names right now. Yeah, but Stephen Gerrard doesn't let it out the bag that Capello was happy to use the telephone with him because Rio's people made him do it. I mean, a lot of information has been released because it would have been released anyway, regardless of how many camps... Rio might have. The point that I'm going to answer your question. The question is if they are mm-hmm. going for it with the PR blitz, it's because Capello has tried to blame Rio, and that's the reason that they've got so but angry. He's already won the PR blitz, right? Because we have this notion here that the captaincy matters. We have this notion that you have to go and tell him to his face because Rio's going to be extremely heartbroken if the captaincy goes back to John Terry. I, I, I don't care. I mean, Graham, am, am I wrong here? Like, if Rio had just, just shut up basically said, oh, I'm sorry, he didn't tell me. I'm sorry, I lost the captaincy. I think I should still be captain because I thought I was doing a good, I do a pretty good job when I'm not injured. Wouldn't this just have knocked the whole thing on the head and would have all gone away rather than he didn't tell me face to face, he didn't call me, he didn't look for me in the director's box at Old Trafford? I don't have any great sympathy, whether it's Terry or Rio Ferdinand or anyone else feeling insulted in, in that way. But, but Gab, for me, more important in all this is the, I mean, you know, the near incompetence of Fabio Capello's communication skills. Now, I know we're, I know this is a slightly different thing. This is this is a manager and a player having one-to-one relations. But the, the, the sheer incompetence of Capello, watching him repeatedly, trying to communicate in English, I just I just find him untrustworthy. I don't mean in terms of his honesty or veracity. I I don't trust him in terms of the ability to communicate. And the guy at the heart of England cannot communicate. It, it amazes me. Do you think he cares, Graham? I think because he knows when he's going to be leaving and he's had such a rough time. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he cares enough to communicate. If he cared, he'd have learned English better for a start. Yeah, well, that, I mean, Alison, I agree with you totally. The, the other thing that's... Listen, I mean, I, I'm a non-linguist. I'm not knocking him for... I can't speak Italian. But the point is, his job is to be able to speak English, unlike me, so... His I, job I, is I, not I, to be able to speak English. Come on, can we, just all, can we just all grow up here? His job is to be able to speak English. His job is to be able to deliver things with England. And, I, and you all thought that the sun was shining out of that place, right, when he was winning every game. And look, he's a disciplinarian, and this is what we needed to kick up the backside. And you'll all be saying the same things if he wins the European Championships in 2012, which, frankly, he might well do because, you know what, bad teams win the, champ- win the Euros all the time. And at the same time, England have some very, very good players, and that could be enough to lift you with a big bit of luck to win the Euros. Now what? Now his main job is communication? Yeah, that's absolute nonsense. Whoever whoever heard of a situation where it wasn't important, it wasn't important for a football manager to be able to communicate with these players clearly. If if you're saying that doesn't matter, I've never heard of such a scenario. Oh, Oh, you haven't? 
key key to a, key? a dressing room situation for a manager to be able to speak clearly to players. You're depicting a surreal uh, picture for me. England in a World Cup in a European Championship. They're in the dressing room. They're going out to a big game. The manager is not very good at relaying instructions to players. And in that key moment, you're saying, well, that's not really all that important. No, 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 no. Oh, 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 Graham, we're hearing two different things here, right? I'm going to answer Alison's point where, about the, where I said about the manager needs to be able to speak English, right? And I'm saying right. um, he needs to be able to relay key instructions to the players. I completely agree with you. And he needs to be able to communicate with them effectively within the context of the dressing room. That's a little bit different, though, than uh, relaying things effectively to the media in the context of, of a press conference. He's, he's near to hopeless anyway, I know that. Well, in his job interview, he said he would learn English. And he, he said he would, didn't he? said he, yeah. he would. Yeah. He didn't come in and say, I am such a disciplinarian that I don't need to learn English. You'll take what you're given. <laughs> right? He said yeah. he accepted at the start of the job he needed to learn. He's, I sort of wonder, well, A, is he a, is he a bit thick? Because if, you, if you're living in a country and English isn't difficult to learn, he will have been exposed to English. It's not some obscure language like Korean. It is, it's around. I mean, Julian speaks it very nicely indeed, and he's not English. And it is possible to learn English if you really want to. And if, you, if he'd really embraced the England job, he would be speaking English a lot better by now. I think Julian he gave up. He's this. already given up. All right. Sorry, Wales fans. I was going to uh, throw out the question whether it was difficult for Gary Speed to integrate people like... Like Crofts and King and Morrison, guys from the lower divisions, alongside legitimate Premier League players, um, as Julian alluded to earlier. But we just don't have time for that. So I'm assuming it is difficult. And good luck uh, to Gary Speed going forward. Why was Scotland against Brazil? A I was going to ask again why this game was being played at the Emirates uh, instead of at Hamden, uh, but we know why. I guess there's better corporate entertainment at, at the Emirates and the people who, the promoters who run our game have basically decided it, it just simply is more lucrative for them to have it there. Is that about, is that about right? Uh, yeah, I think so, Gab. Yeah, I mean, they, they called it right in the sense that they knew that um, getting Scotland would get a mass invasion of fans and they got that. I mean, you know, 53,000 for a, for a friendly, 25,000 Scots. Okay, a lot of them already based in London, and yes, a lot of the Brazilian oblique South American community based in London, but they still, I reckon maybe 20,000 Scots came down from north of the border. So in that sense, it was a, it was a winner. Uh, well, it wasn't a winner on the pitch but, uh, for Scotland, but it was a corporate winner, as you say, and I bet you money was made. Um, and it, it, yeah, in every sense, staging the circus worked, I think, uh, financially. Julian, the Emirates is your second home. Um, does it kind of bother you that they're playing this game there? No, 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 not at all. I think it's a good thing. Why did they play it at Wembley, actually? Or is it just because nobody wants to go to Wembley because it's a pain to get to? Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. I think it's good. I think it's good to um, to, to, to see. I, you know, it seemed like, Graham, you, you can confirm that it was a good atmosphere over there from, yeah, from what I saw. Yeah, it was really know, good atmosphere, yeah. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a great stadium, great pitch, you know, yeah. Um, Graham, what would you make of Brazil? Because it strikes me that you know Mano Menezes, who, by the way, is on Twitter. Um, I think he's yeah, on the yeah, national. Yeah, I saw team. that gap. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think he's the only, might well be the only national team coach who's on who's on Twitter. Um, a million know, and a half followers. Is that right? Um, I, I, th- I think that. it's it's a lot. Yeah. Then again, there's a lot of Brazilian, Brazilians out there. To be fair, he's not like the most 
entertaining guy. He doesn't tell you what he's having for breakfast or what, you know, what, what music he's listening to just now. It's more like, you know, we got on the plane now. The team are very excited. We have landed. The team are still excited. It's more stuff like that. But it just struck me. It, he's got kind of he's got a big problem in the sense that he's got so much talent. Um, in sort of, especially in the midfield and the striking positions, um, his defense seems to be more, slightly more veterans, more, a little more settled. Um, but you don't necessarily have the outstanding individual sort of top five, top ten player in the world type talent, uh, although Neymar may yet get there. You just have a lot of very, very good players. And so sometimes it's, it's difficult to, to find the right combination. Is that maybe the sense you got? Yeah. Um... I think so. I mean, Neymar looked terrific yesterday, but but I'm like you. I'm always wary of making any um, emphatic judgment after 90 minutes, especially against Scotland. So probably not too much can be read into it. But if you were the Brazilian manager, you you, you certainly have one hell of a lot of sifting to do through all the talent that comes through. But watching Brazil yesterday, I thought, well, here are these young guys like Neymar and others. Uh, but even in a friendly, I thought there was a real work ethic and intensity about them which I found quite impressive Graham, who had, who had the greater work ethic Scotland or Brazil? I would say Brazil actually well, well listen in terms of, in terms of willingness um, Scotland were every bit as willing as, as Brazil but let, put it this way Brazil applied it more successfully and for a guy like me steeped in football growing up in the 70s loving football the, the, what's now the myth of Brazil was just showmanship and a circus act and to see them yesterday working so hard even in a friendly I thought was quite eye-opening and it reminded me of what Craig Brown said Pereira had said you know years ago I, I think a lot of the reason you saw them working so hard is that, of course, they've got the Copa America coming up, and yeah. they know that you know there's basically maybe like seven or eight Brazilian players who are sure of going to the Copa America. There's so many spots up for grabs, and there aren't that many, that many friendlies or, or training sessions uh, where they can prove that. Interesting too, also with Pereira, how all the stuff he told Craig Brown sort of seemed to go out the window in, in, in 2006 uh, with, with with Brazil at the World Cup. I just find it absolutely fascinating how. This manager, who was so pragmatic in '94, became so sort of uh, Keegan-esque in, uh, in in 2006. But I want to on something else. Um, this has been a lot has been made about this in Brazil. I was it was on a Brazilian radio station actually ridiculously late last night trying to um, explain this. Um, basically. Uh, Neymar fe feels that he was uh, racially abused. Um, he certainly was abused. They could hear it on television, uh, people booing. Um, and it's funny because, of course, when fans in Eastern Europe or Spain or Italy boo, uh, they're making monkey noises. Um, but when fans in this country do it, they're just booing. But um, somebody threw a banana on the pitch. You can see Lucas Leva removing the banana. Um, but it, it, there was this... People are very upset about this in Brazil. People are saying, like, you know, you guys think you're the first world, first world, uh, but in reality, you're the people who need to grow up. Um, th does that kind of sort of fairly sum up the background, uh, Graham? I mean, you were there. You've written about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it does. Yeah, you're, you're right, uh, um, Gab. That's the background to it. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not complacent about racism in football. God knows we, we see it often enough and I'm certainly not complacent about the possibility of racism from the Tartan army even given the, the fact that the Tartan army has such a good reputation and I think largely justified however having said that I think Neymar just got it wrong the Scotland fan I was there 
and the Scotland fans were booing him and jeering him because they thought he'd feigned injury and he was he, he was uh, he was going down too say, easily. Why would so you when, feign when injury to friendly? It would never occur to me to boo him and think he was feigning injury in a, in a meaningless, irrelevant, friendly game. Well, is that oh, really well, is that is that really the reason they gave? They absolutely, Gab. And I can tell you this: the Tartan Army don't give two tosses whether it's a, a friendly game or a championship game. They they will boo and barrack any player. No, I'm saying booing and barracking is fine. But like, injury. To actually think, oh, you know, as I say, I, I'm all for booing the guy because he plays for the other team. But to boo him and then justify, like, we booed him because he thought he was being unsportsmanlike because he was feigning injury, it just sounds a bit... Why don't you just say, like, we were booing him because he played for the other team, he's a young guy, we thought he could get under his skin and maybe he wouldn't play as well, and that's our way of supporting our team. Nothing wrong with that, right? Right. Well, I mean, let, let me just finish the point. They were, they were booing him because they thought he was feigning injury. I don't know, your, your view of a football fan's mentality might be different from mine, but the Tartan Army will boo any player they think is doing that, and they don't care what game it's in. Neymar has interpreted this as racism. Neymar walks off the park and he's booed and jeered by the Scotland fans who I think, to the best of my knowledge, hardly have any uh, racist among them. Uh, and he says, ah, they must be, that must be racism. He just misinterpreted it. Do you buy this? Is that a possibility that we really could have a lot of cross messages and, and a rogue banana here? Yeah, I think maybe we're reading a bit too much into it but, but, but because previously I think there have been stories like that you know, in every country, in, in France, in Italy, in, in Spain, you know, there have been stories of, of, of racism in football. And I think I've been in, in England six years now and I've never seen him before. And yesterday, you know, watching watching the game, it, it was shocking. I saw Lucas with the banana. It seems indeed that he came from a part of the stadium where there was more Brazilian fans than Scottish fans. And I, I, I heard the boos from, from the Scottish fans towards Neymar. I, I think there were more boos than monkey noses and just that because because he was a Brazilian player. And um, yeah, I think I, I, I'm feeling that we, we're reading a bit too much into it and that actually maybe that was not really racism like we could experience it in other countries. Does it count, Does it count as a resurgence of racism if one person even if it was a racist banana sorry I'm not making light of racism but bananas yellow I mean someone might have just bought loads of bananas because Brazil were there and they we if one person if one person had shouted one sort of racist remark it doesn't mean there's a resurgence of racism and I suspect most people who were not Brazilian who were at the Emirates most people love Brazil in football if you like your football well, you love Brazil you go to that game because you want not just to support Scotland but you also think it's slightly a privilege to be able to travel not too far a distance and even if you're in London it's even more convenient just to see the mighty Brazil it's a treat you don't you don't go there with a sense of tribalism because it's it's not how the Scots feel about Brazil in that way. It, it, there's more a case of mutual respect. Um, Brazilians know that the Tartan Army have a reputation for being amongst the friendliest and most jovial of, of international football fans. There's no there's. It's, it doesn't match at all. And if one, even if that one person threw the banana, not as a joke, but forgetting that they might have had a significance, I don't. I don't even know why we're having the debate because because coins are thrown and lasers are fired at players' heads all the time and it's not regarded as a resurgence of anything. For this next part of my debate, I have very, very strong views on, but I will keep silent because I imagine they will be rather unpopular. Um, I was chatting to our producer, uh, Chris, recently, and we were talking about um, the footballer John White from the 50s and 60s um, and, and how... Basically, uh, players back then 
we're much much closer to the average fan and to the average media and part of this might have been uh, might have been finan- uh, financial um, and my favorite stat here is that uh, you know when when Jimmy Hill um, broke the minimum wage uh, sorry the maximum wage uh, <laughs> we're so used to saying minimum wage is a very sad reflection of the times we live in um, here are some numbers, which, and, and I think money is part of it. Um, at the time of the maximum wage, it was the equivalent adjusted for inflation of about thirty-six thousand pounds per year, and in two thousand one, the average annual, uh, annual Premier League salary was six hundred and seventy-six thousand, and by some counts, it's now over a million pounds a year. Um, Julian, let's start with you, since you're far and away the wealthiest one here. Um, does <laughs> I wish. Does money does money change things? I mean, you, you spend time with with footballers also because they're foreigners in a foreign land and so on. Um, does it make it more removed, not from you because you're wealthy and you lead a flash lifestyle, but from the average fans? Yeah, I can I can understand why the fans don't recognize themselves today in you know in the players because. Of, of the difference in in terms of what footballers are earning, and and what the fans are earning, for example, I think there's there's a few there's a few, I, th- I think the, the clubs don't do enough to um, to interact fans and players, you know I think and and that's always uh, and and you probably agree because it's the same in your country, but in France training sessions are big clubs like Marseille, PSG, any club actually, are open to the fans. The fans can come in the week, you know, watch training. At the end, sometimes they can take photos, sign autographs with the players and things like that. In this country... Just, so, so basically, you're, what you're describing, Paris Saint-Germain, Marseille, with the fans showing up, the exactly. open trading round, just like Old Trafford. Exa- yeah, exactly, just like just like Arsenal. And, and you know, and I think, I really feel there's something the fans enjoy. They enjoy coming to training, see their, their idols, see the, you know, the team's training, how they train, then grab an autograph, grab a photo, or see them leaving, or whatever. In this country, you're not even allowed to come close to the training ground of United, Arsenal, Chelsea, right. or whatever. I love it. Outside a lot of training grounds, they have those signs up, don't they, Alison, where they it, say, like, players are told and the players will not stop for <laughs> autographs. Exactly. <laughs> they will run over you with their car, with a Lamborghini, if you stand here to try to get an autograph. And I really think, you know, this, this is a problem, for example. Alison, when, when, when you were a little girl in, in the late 1980s, um, <laughs> did you... Did you and I mean, and obviously, I think I'm not giving anything away here that you know there is a, a, a top flight club that you support. Did you feel closer to the players? Did you admire them because they were maybe like your, you know, your dad or your uncle, or your cousin or your older sibling, or in other words, that you could relate to them directly? Or did you admire them? Because they were different. Because they were they were they were sort of gods and royalty. Um, Apart from Kenny, of course, who is the king. But I mean, the other ones. Well, both things are true, but. When I was little, players still needed to earn a living when they'd finished playing, and it was in their interest to have a relationship with the community. They would open a sports shop or a pub or a restaurant in the vicinity, and they would their income would be guaranteed on the fact that they would they'd been fated as players, but also seen as part of the community. And they were never too distant. I mean, there are you can you can find thousands of people who would be wandering around Anfield, and if you bumped into um, Bill Shankly, he you couldn't get away, you know. They want he wanted to talk, and that fed through to the players. Players were you know if you speak spoke to them in the street, they were accessible. You, they'd stop the car and wind the window down and sign an autograph, whether it was outside the training ground or in the middle of the shopping precinct, and 
so it's not a fallacy to say it has completely changed and overall the top flight players are, are told they're told not to do that I think because I think lower league players are still accessible and again if you bump into a lower division player he will want to chat 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 because they don't feel they get very much exposure and their views are not heard and they love that they love the game and they love their club and they love the village near where they play and they're happy to talk to you but they we have produced a breed of player who, who feel they're not almost they're not they're not they're not human they're 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 they're, they're, they're packs of little deities all dotted around the country you can't touch uh, them you can't touch them or talk to them um Graham, um, if you could shed, shed some light on this, because I, I would imagine part of the reason that players are told not to, or, or often advised to, not not mix as freely, is because maybe some of the supporters have become a little more fanatical over the years. Some of them are complete weirdos, um, and maybe in some cities, I'm thinking of your own fair town of Glasgow, there is a certain acrimony that is such that you know maybe it wouldn't be a good idea if, say, the Ian Ferguson of his day wandered into Baird's Bar and started talking to the people there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are obvious pitfalls, I think, for modern footballers being out and about. It's a bit complicated, Gablo, in a way, because in one way, it seems to me, supporters see and hear from footballers more than ever before, more, the, more than they did 30 or 40 years ago, for example, through the mass media, on television, newspaper interviews. In one sense, your average supporter has much greater access to a player than, than, than he had 40 years ago. So it is a little bit complicated. I, I mean, I know it's different because... Sorry, 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 sorry Graham, uh, just to jump in there. When you say greater access, access does it mean because we know what his favourite colour is or his favourite band and we've seen him on you know, MTV Cribs, we, we, we've seen his house and his garage? Do you mean like we just know more about them? Yeah, well, however superficial it is, what I mean is um, a, a Man United supporter today hears much more, sees much more of, and hears much more from Wayne Rooney than a Man United supporter 35 years ago or 40 years ago heard from Bobby Charlton. Wayne Rooney is, is hardly a week goes by when he's not quoted or he's not seen in Match of the Day or he's not seen on, on television. This obviously doesn't apply to Sir Alex. But, you know, so in, in one way, supporters see much more of their uh, players through the mass media we have now compared to 40 years ago. The difference is... For example, to use the Scottish context, when, for example, Rangers or Celtic went to play Aberdeen in a league game, they would arrive at the main train station in Glasgow and they'd go by train. And I don't know this for a fact, but I presume maybe if Spurs or West Ham played Man United 40 years ago, maybe they'd have gone by train. So supporters would get on trains in those days and see the team there, you know. You don't get that now, do you? But, but it's complicated. They, players are much more visible. You could also argue that because of PR companies and other community initiatives, you could also conceivably argue that footballers do much more community work now than they did 40 years ago. So, I, I, to me, the picture's unclear. In some, in some ways, there's not a distancing between the fan and the player. In some ways, there, there's actually a greater proximity. Julien, did... did um, just, just to say, oh, Graham, but football has changed a lot as well, you know, since, since 40 years ago. And, and Arsenal went to play Manchester United in the FA Cup no longer ago by train, like two, two weeks ago. They, they, right. went, they went to Manchester by train. But, but, if, but if, did they if have you, their own carriage like the Queen yeah, did? Yeah, but you had, no, but you had to because, because otherwise the train would have never left uh, Houston. Be, because if, you know, if the fans, if the Arsenal fans or anyone at London Houston station would have been able to get on the train to sign autographs or see the 
players are talked, the trend would have never left. And in a way, football has become such a big you know business and it's such massive everywhere now that you have to protect the players in a way you know even sadly when they take the train difference between fan and um and players uh, augmented by the fact that they're generally not local lads anymore they're 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 you know and i'm not just saying they're just foreigners who came here to take your jobs but they may be people from other parts of the country or from south of the border right I think that's probably a factor. I mean, as you as you well know, Gab, if you take the famous case of you know Celtic winning the European Cup in '67, all, all 11 players came from within 30 miles of Glasgow. You know, it was an amazing situation, and and that one example of Celtic in '67 summed up the kind of localism that Alison was touching on. Now, of course, it's a it's a any team, even Rangers and Celtic, with their limita- financial limitations. Certainly in England, it's a more it's more cosmopolitan. I'm still I'm still not. Convinced though that that it's it's as different as we make out. I mean, a, a Rangers player, a Celtic player, or a Man United player, or a Liverpool player steps out of the main door of their stadium. I think now, just like 40 years ago, a fan goes, oh, "My God, you know they're so and so." There's still that mythical, heroic thing there. Uh, does the fact that is it really a key fact that now they earn? 40 times what your average bloke in the street earns compared to back 40 years ago when it was maybe just twice as much or three times as much. Is it really such a big factor? I think that depends on the personality of the of the footballer. Some guys are flash with their gear, aren't they? And somebody else, like, take David Weir, now Rangers, once at Everton. He's completely level-headed. There's nothing flash about him at all. So there's all these different factors. I don't know if it's easily diagnosed, to be honest. Julian, you get the last word. When, when I was growing up, one of my non-footballing heroes was Axl Rose because I loved Guns N' Roses. I was never under the illusion that Axl Rose was going to be like anybody I knew. I, I accepted that he was different. He was a musician. He got to do other things. I liked his music. Didn't want to be like him. Um, why can't we be like that with football? Why do we have to have this pretense that footballers can't be entertainers, stroke gods, stroke whatever? Why do we, why do we say like, oh, but he's not a, you know, he's not a normal bloke? Or, or why do we even naturally say that when we meet a footballer who is just a normal guy, like, you know, we it's somehow better than El Hajjouf or the footballer who isn't a normal guy? I don't know. I feel sometimes in this country the the fans love their football so much and l- love their club so much. They feel the players belong to them in a way and that their clubs belong to them. And 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 maybe. 40 years ago or 30 years ago you know they could meet one in the street and say oh yeah you know I've had a chat with whoever and today it's not it's not even possible unless maybe you live in Hampstead and you know but and and I, I do feel that the fans maybe expect I don't know too much off the pitch from from the players and 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 um and that's wrong in a way and I think maybe the fans are a bit to blame as well for that you know that gap between them and the players now that was not before. Time now for some quick hits. Ledley King could reportedly be fit for the Spurs clash with Real Madrid in the Champions League on April 5th. Yes, I know we've all heard this before, but hey, maybe this time he really will play. Uh, Allison, should Redknapp even consider playing a guy who has not kicked a ball in a competitive game in more than five months? Uh, 
yeah, you should definitely consider it because you're not going to outwit um, Jose Mourinho, but you might well baffle him by <laughs> by playing somebody he's not been able to watch recently. Um, I mean, central defence is is the worst place to make a sudden um, uh, you know a cameo performance, and uh, it, it it does defy logic to that extent. But um, I'm sure Redknapp has very good reasons for muting it. Yes, yeah, like confusing me because William Gallus and Michael Dawson are just fine. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Fabio Capello has announced wholesale changes for the Ghana friendly this week, prompting the usual suspects to complain that fads who bought tickets are being shortchanged. Uh, Graham, do they have a point, or should they just grow up? Uh, I think um, I think fans shouldn't be overly expectant on a friendly game, and it's all about competitive matches. And we've seen so many times before. I've seen it with Scotland waifs and strays coming onto the scene for a friendly game so accept the deal that's how it is don't cry and move on Gerard Houllier is apparently turning the disciplinary screws on his Villa team uh, Julian will it have any effect whatsoever and is it true that Robert Perez gets chauffeured up from London every single day and do you wonder which nice person at Villa leaked that to the press <laughs> so once yeah I think you'll have an effect a negative one because I think the players start to be really fed up by Gerard Houllier's um, disciplinary um, rules and, uh, and and as well as these tactical ones uh, and then yes Robert Perez gets chauffeured and uh, I went I did that journey with him once and it was lovely and he's got a very comfortable car and then he was still very good at training so I don't think that was a problem and I've got no idea who leaked it to the press but it was not me sounds like it was you (laughs) (laughs) Gab a question for you Italy were a little disappointing at the World Cup thank you any signs of progress since then uh, yeah, no, I think there have been signs of progress. Uh, the, what, what they're trying to do is, because the players aren't that good right now, the ones who are, who are available, they're just trying to play better football. And uh, they played uh, Slovenia at the weekend, uh, basically without a holding midfielder, and just with passing and movement. And Italy had like 70% possession, and they won 1-0 away. And, you know, doing all the things that stereotypically Italy are supposedly not good at, and which we haven't been good at at the end. It's, um, it's a new route. It's a brave new dawn, but still. <laughs> Long, long way to go. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening. Please go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis, and your web chats. I do mine on Mondays. Patty's got one. Ollie Kay's got one. Spears has one. Well, you guys know the drill. But don't worry, we're going to be back next week. Till then, goodbye.